Hello everyone and welcome. This is your host Molly Rowan Leach of the ongoing free international webcast and telecouncil series Restorative Justice on the Rise, co-sponsored by the Peace Alliance. Welcome to this archive recording from Thursday, May 23rd with our very honored guest, Dr. Mark Umbright. He's a professor and founding director of the Center for Restorative Justice and Peacemaking at the University of Minnesota School of Social Work. He also serves as a visiting professor at the Marquette University Law School in Milwaukee. And much beyond, he served over the past 30 years in the field of justice and, and peacebuilding, restorative justice, and beyond. So I hope you'll enjoy this profound conversation with Dr. Umbright. And do join us in the future every Thursday at 5 p.m. Pacific for Restorative Justice on the Rise, which is a service of the Peace Alliance and a platform for virtual dialogue, education, connection, and inspired action. Thank you, and enjoy this archive with Dr. Mark Umbright. Hello, everybody. Welcome, welcome. We've got lots of folks on the phone tonight, as well as some of you on the webcast. I think I had those of you in the webcast in our green room as uh, Mark and I were chatting, so you got to hear some fun conversations. But just, um, I'm really thrilled to have everybody joining us tonight. My name is Matthew Albrocht. I'm not the, um, the, the traditional host of this call. That would be Molly Rowan Leach. She's the founder and and main host of this call, but I am filling in for her tonight. And I'm the Executive Vice President of the Peace Alliance, which is one of the co-sponsors of this series. We're thrilled to have such great conversations every week with some just really incredible uh, peace builders, restorative justice practitioners, and leaders in the field, and it's just been so enlightening. Um, uh, just for those of you who aren't aware of the Peace Alliance, just quickly, we're a uh, a U.S.-based advocacy organization and education really working to make the work of peace building, um, the practical pragmatic work of peace building, more of a priority both politically and, and in every way around our nation. So we work to, to advocate with our elected officials. We work to educate the public about what this work is, what it looks like, how effective it is. Um, we work to build national coalitions and ultimately a, a movement around the country really pushing for more restorative approaches uh, away from these punitive and militaristic approaches that are so predominant in our culture now. And we, we do that through organizing in communities around the nation. We have team leaders and activists who are out there working with members of Congress, with their community, with so many more to, to engage. And this is one of our... Uh, we're thrilled to have this educational series, the Restorative Justice on the Rise series, to really educate about how much amazing work is going on out in the world and practices and some of the challenges that we face, etc. So we're thrilled to have you on tonight. And I will go ahead and move into our uh, guest speaker. Um, his name is Mark Umbright. Uh, he's a PhD. And I'm going to read his bio. And, and it's, I, I had a hard time. I was trying to pare it down a little bit instead of reading a long bio, but there's so much good stuff that I'm just going to go ahead and read it um, for all of you, and then we'll, we'll start. So uh, Dr. Mark is a professor and founding director of the Center for Restorative Justice and Peacemaking at the University of Minnesota School of Social Work, uh, among many other prestigious institutions. 
He's an internationally recognized practitioner and scholar with more, than, with more than 40 years of experience as a mediator, peacemaker, trainer, teacher, researcher, and author of eight books and more than 200 other publications in the fields of restorative justice, mediation, spirituality, forgiveness, and peacemaking, including his forthcoming book, which is entitled Dancing with the Energy of Conflict and Trauma, Letting Go, Finding Peace. Uh, Mark has been a consultant and trainer for the U.S. Department of Justice also for the past 30 years. As a practitioner, he facilitates peace-building circles in the community between members of diverse cultures and restorative dialogues between family survivors of homicide and the offender of their, uh, in their excuse me, and the offender in their quest for healing and strength. He's helped establish restorative justice programs in hundreds of communities including in nearly every state in the U.S. and numerous other countries. Dr. Umbright's multi-site and multinational research has contributed significantly to restorative justice policy development in the U.S. and other countries, as well as providing resource materials and guidance to practitioners. Uh, Mark is currently working as Senior International Consultant with the United Nations Development Program and the, Minori and the Ministry of Justice in Turkey to support their legislative efforts to implement uh, victim offender mediation throughout the country. Um, so just so many amazing uh, offerings to the world. Uh, another great uh, resource that's coming up soon is a film that he's worked on that's entitled Being with the Energy of Forgiveness, Lessons from Former Enemy Enemies in Restorative Dialogue. And it will be shown on uh, some PBS stations. It will be on YouTube. It's on DVD. And um, I'm sure we'll hear more about it on this call. Definitely we'll hear more about it on this call. But uh, to go ahead and shift to, to hearing so much from you, Mark, let's just uh, turn it over to you. And, and maybe you'd want to start by just sharing whatever you want to share, but maybe a little bit about what brought you into this field of restorative justice. Well, thank you, Matthew. Uh, it goes back quite a ways into the 1970s, a long time ago. I had actually, for many years before getting to RJ, had worked on prison reform. I was a fairly radical prison reformer, working with prisoners who were resisting the conditions in the Indiana State Prison. I was a community organizer. And in those early years, very frankly, I was totally offender-focused as an advocate for them. Uh, Ex-cons and I helped developed the first halfway house in Indiana. It still exists and has expanded to some other communities in the area and parts of the state and other states. And I'm ashamed to say this, but I'll be honest, in those early years, um, I didn't even think of victims or victimized communities. Or if I thought of them, I thought that they'd just be vengeful toward my client, the offender. And the offenders do need help. But uh, I became victimized myself. My board members did. Actually, I've been victimized a number of times. Um, I was uh, met Howard Zare with the Mennonite Central Committee. Uh, Howard was the brilliant guy conceptualizing this whole thing, and they tried the initial cases in Elkhart, Indiana, and we came together and collaborated and really developing what was about those early years called victim-offender reconciliation. And in those early years, none of us had any idea this would go anywhere beyond working with young offenders, nonviolent property crimes. And nor did we have any idea that it would evolve into what truly is a, a social movement in the global community. So my beginnings, Matthew, were, were 
really, it, I, I learned it and got attached to it from the inside out, from living in the community, through being asked to be, become a part of this, through my experience of victimization and those of others. It was not something I learned in college or thought, hmm, this would be an interesting career to go into. And as I mentioned earlier, I just feel incredibly fortunate to witness things I never thought I'd see in my lifetime, the way this has developed all over this country, in numerous other countries, the way the United Nations has endorsed it, the European Union. Uh, and there are so many powerful expressions of restorative justice today that go far beyond the criminal and juvenile justice systems of our many countries. And we're talking about in school systems, in neighborhoods, in public health, in universities, in human rights settings, as part of transitional justice in major conflict zones throughout the world. There's more I could say, but I, I don't want to be talking all the time. I'd uh, be very open to uh, all of the questions you might have and others online with us. And, you know, I also want to just say one thing. I, you know, I appreciate your kind uh, introduction and reading my Vita and all that, but I always feel a little embarrassed by that, too, because, uh, yeah, that's, that's my, you know, that's sort of my professional stuff, but I first and foremost am a father of my wonderful children and grandchildren, uh, been with my life partner for 40-plus years. We're going through mm. some very difficult health issues at the moment, but we're hanging mm. in there. And I'm a citizen of this community and of the world, and that's what keeps me grounded in restorative justice. This is not just academic stuff or heady theoretical stuff. This is just real earthy, practical ways to foster both accountability and healing in ways that move us forward in the sense of uh, peace-building in the real way. Thank you so much, and and I, I mean I think all of us are really interested in whatever whatever you want to share that has the most meaning. Please do. Uh, I will definitely ask some questions. And by the way, for everybody online, we'll open it up here in in a few minutes, um, about ten or fifteen minutes, to to those of you on the call who want to ask questions. So if you have any, think about them, and then we'll have you raise your hand later with a key on your phone. Um, and we have some great webcast questions as well. Um, gosh, there's so many things that have me curious. Why don't we start with um, your, your upcoming book, uh, Dancing with the Energy of Conflict and Trauma. Um, do you, is there anything you'd like to share about that and how it relates to restorative justice um, and oh, in particular forgiveness? And maybe your film too, and just kind of relate the forgiveness conversation. You and I were chatting earlier. Well, I'd love to hear more about that. Let me back up. I mean, forgiveness has been an issue in the restorative justice movement from the, when it began in the 70s. And I want to make something real, real clear. The purpose of restorative justice is not to push forgiveness. Yet forgiveness is one of the most beautiful, frequent outcomes of the process. It's a real paradox. We've learned over the years that the more you explicitly push forgiveness, the less safe many people feel going there. It feels very judgmental. And to crime victims, it's incredibly uh, disrespectful. Mm -hmm. It's like negating their legitimate rage for what happened in their lives. On the other hand, the more you focus on building a safe, if not sacred, depending on the person's life context and values, a safe place for dialogue where people can sit down together, not in a court setting, but can speak from the heart, can listen from the heart, can hear the woundedness of what's occurred to all people, the hurt, the real human outcomes, the more that kind of a space can be created, the more likely people will choose forgiveness if they want it. You know, forgiveness is not 
something to externally push on people. That's done all the time mm-hmm. through many institutions in our societies. And, you know, maybe that's sort of an initial baby step, perhaps. My own experience over the years and after reviewing um, hundreds and hundreds of volumes today and, and research out there on forgiveness that's been done over the last two decades, you know, it's, it's such a misunderstanding of what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is it's, it's not some saintly act of letting someone go or forgetting. Forgiveness is perhaps one of the most powerful, transformative spiritual gifts you can give to yourself. It's like reclaiming your freedom. It's like cutting that bond that, that, that's holding you still under the uh, tyranny of the person who hurt you so bad by continually hating and thinking about them and engaging in self-talk. Bishop Tutu, who led the South African Truth and Reconciliation hearings during the Freedom Movement, he talks about holding on to unresolved anger at a deep level is like taking a daily dose of rat poison and expecting the rat to die. So, you know, forgiveness, the film that's coming out, is a very different way of looking at forgiveness. It's not about an intellectual way of understanding forgiveness. Here's the five steps of how to forgive, and you need to do this, that, and the other. There's value in that. I'm not diminishing that. But it's really trying to bear witness to what I've experienced as a practitioner for the last 30, 40 years. I couldn't put words on it earlier. I was just always in awe of it, where when you bring people together who have been involved in crime as the victim, as the person who committed the act, uh, community members oftentimes, where you think there's going to be hatred and anger. And when you engage in the restorative justice dialogue process the way you're supposed to, with preparation and respect, it's remarkable. People respond to each other. There's anger, but they respond to each other oftentimes with a level of kindness even and compassion that you would never think would be there. And the film goes into four cases, one involving a parent of a murdered child whose son was killed during a mistaken gang incident in North Minneapolis, Minnesota. Another case in St. Paul, Minnesota, uh, that I had worked on for two and a half years of preparation, a, a woman who came to me 22 years after her father was viciously killed, stabbed 44 times. She had the, one of the highest levels of anger I'd ever worked with, um, with anyone, and that's why it took such long preparation. And yet when I brought them together and I did all that lengthy preparation with the uh, man in prison who was responsible for that, when I brought them together, the word forgiveness was never used. But if you saw the videotapes, which I have of the actual encounter, and there's snippets of this in the film, and you hear Pam talk about it, that's what I refer to as the energy of forgiveness. It's the real stuff. It's where people are able to let go of it and find peace. You know, forgiveness does, is not dependent on the actions of the other person. If you look at forgiveness as dependent on the other person, you're giving that other person who hurt you badly enormous power. So that's kind of an overview of the film, although I should add there's two other cases in the film, one involving... Uh, community conflict in North Minneapolis between the Somali community and our Native American community where restorative justice was used and then uh, a case involving clergy sex abuse in the community of Milwaukee, Wisconsin and it has a little bit about some of the work I've been doing in Turkey 
the book, Dancing with the Energy of Conflict and Trauma, is not just about forgiveness. That's, it's a small, easy-to-read, hopefully inspirational book. It's the antithesis of anything academic, even though I'm based in a university. Um, it's really, part of it's autobiographical about trauma and conflict within my own life. Um, but it's, also, it's primarily a series of stories, brief little stories of people I've worked with here and in many other countries that entered the restorative dialogue process. And it talks about the impact, and it shares that impact in their own words. And, again, it's not meant to be some deep analysis of the theory and impact of this stuff. It's meant to be a very earthy portrayal of how this has led to incredible transformation in the lives of these people. And then it concludes with some just very helpful tools for the journey that we can learn from uh, with the conflicts and trauma that we face in our lives at different levels. That's great. And by the way, do you have, uh, is there a website or anything that you run that might have, you know, that people could check for both the film and the book and other things? Yes, yeah, the or, website uh, is rjp, for restorative justice peacemaking, dot umn dot edu. So rjp dot umn dot edu. Yes. Yeah. And if, great. Great. if for some reason that fails, it shouldn't, but I just heard the other night that someone, well, at the TV station I was being interviewed on, they tried that and it couldn't pull up. It might have been some technical thing at the U uh, where they're working on or redeveloping. You can just Google Restorative Justice Center, University of Minnesota, and it'll come up. If you just even Got Google it. Restorative Justice Minnesota, it'll come up our center. Actually. Well, it's such, a, it's such a powerful conversation. I'm looking forward to both and, you know, really bringing the depth of, and foundation of what it's going to take to have healing. It feels like these are issues really underlying that. You mentioned Turkey, your work in Turkey, and I'm, I'm very interested about the international work that you're involved with in the field, including uh, with the UN and your specific work in Turkey. Can you share more about what's, what you're working on and what's happening? Sure, but let me back up with just uh, a few one-liners on restorative justice itself. You know, as restorative Please. justice is developed as a social movement, there are many, many different definitions. And I want to try to be as clear as possible. I mean, restorative justice views crime as a wound within the community. And justice requires accountability and healing. And it invites those most affected by the crime, those who were victimized, those who committed the crime, families of each, community members who were affected by the crime. It invites those stakeholders into the process of doing justice. And restorative justice affects the entire way we look at and understand crime, how to respond to it. There's many different policies, but the clearest expression, the most research-based expression of restorative justice, the most widely used throughout the world, is what I call restorative justice dialogue. And that's an umbrella term for a number of approaches, such as victim-offender mediation, the oldest, most widely used, family group conferencing, sometimes it's called community group conferencing, peacemaking circles, talking circles. There's many hybrids. Mm. And restorative justice, I also want to make real clear, in many ways is like white European folks getting with the program because <laughs> indigenous cultures throughout the world, particularly among the First Nation people of Canada, Native Americans, the over 450 tribes here that were here before any Europeans set foot in this land, they have practices 
that today we would call restorative justice, but it was just woven into their culture in many ways. Mm-hmm. I don't want to over-romanticize any culture because all of our cultures have also had some not-so-helpful things, too. But indigenous right. cultures uh, really uh, are the inspiration and have been some of my main teachers. I do uh, have done quite a bit of work in Indian country over the years, and currently I'm working with the uh, tribal court on the Pine Ridge Reservation with a colleague of mine, a Lakota colleague. So I want to give credit where credit is due. The work in Mm -hmm. Turkey is directly related to the United Nations and the European Union's endorsement of restorative justice, oh, about 10 years ago or so. New nations who want to enter the European Union must have, by statute of the European Union, uh, statutes in their country that support restorative justice, victim-offender mediation specifically. Turkey, for years, has been positioning itself to enter the European Union. So they've been doing quite a bit of work, research work, looking into this, some initial training. And it was about a year ago, well, a year and a half ago, uh, I was called by uh, a colleague in the United Nations and wanted me to organize an international conference in Istanbul to invite colleagues from about 12 different countries and to put together an international team to train lawyers and prosecutors and uh, people in the community so that Turkey uh, not only has passed national legislation in support of restorative justice through victim-offender mediation, but to help implement it. And that's the difficult part. Passing legislation is hard. That's the political piece. But breathing life into it in a real sense through training and implementation is the hard work. And so we've had a team, including myself, going back several trips. We'll be going back a few more times this year. It's a, it's a major project, and uh, with any of the work I do in other countries or, in fact, in Indian country among Native Americans, most of which those communities are sovereign nations, by the way, mm-hmm. um, I don't go in as some expert saying this is what restorative justice must be and here's how you've got to do it. Rather, I go in only in response to the invitation, being invited into those communities, and to share whatever resources I can, including mistakes I've made or others and what we've learned from research and what we found the most helpful. And what I always emphasize is the supreme importance of putting everything I say through cultural filters and adapting the process to fit in a respectful way within the culture. That includes work I've been doing over recent years with, um, with the work we've been doing with our engagement process with Islam and restorative justice. I'm sure it's a very uh, fine-tuned, probably isn't the correct word, but a fine-tuned process to, to really hold that space. Is, is there a, you, I know you're teaching, is there, is, do you feel excited about the, the amount of folks who are really working with and training and how to, how to approach these, bringing this well, into communities? Well, yes and no. I'll be very frank. I'm very excited to see, uh, even during the hard economic times, even though we're coming out of it a bit now, even during all these difficult times in the past number of years, restorative justice programs uh, continue to being developed. When you you get into restorative justice, it gets into your heart usually. (laughs) Whether you've got money or not, most people volunteer for it. The work I do as a practitioner primarily is volunteered. And that's true with many, many other people. There are staff in you know, some agencies, and there need to be. Um, but the 
one of the things I am extremely encouraged how there's a growing consensus, and this is something I've emphasized for decades, the supreme importance of preparation. For example, just to bring uh, victims and offenders and family members and community people together in a peacemaking circle or a conference or a mediation without preparation is not going to result in the positive outcomes that we've documented through research and we found through practice over the last three, four decades. It might sometimes, but what we've learned is the supreme importance of meeting separately, first with the person, uh, usually in the more serious crimes, first with the person who is victimized because they initiate the process in the real severe violent crimes. Um, in the more common crimes, like probably over 95% of all cases in restorative justice are nonviolent property crimes, minor assaults, mostly with juveniles, mm -hmm. not exclusively. In those cases, you first meet with the offender, and then you meet with the victim. In the more serious cases, you usually first meet with the victim because they initiate it, and then the offender. And in the serious cases, you oftentimes meet with them multiple times. And in the case of Pam, which is highlighted in the film, I met with her, oh my gosh, I don't know, seven or eight times on and off over a couple of years and lots of phone conversations. So the preparation is supremely important. For the past mm. four years, we've been, we've been able to get a small grant of, it's, based, it's essentially State Department grant funds that go through the International Institute for Education, and they contract with our Center for Restorative Justice and Peacemaking. We've held a week-long seminar called Peace Building Through Restorative Dialogue. And and it's called a mindfulness-based approach. And we've had, each year we've had people from over 20 non-Western countries, primarily Muslim countries, that come to Minnesota. And it's, it's not a lecture format. I mean, there's storytelling, little mini lecturettes at most, but it's very experiential. Um, people learn some of the basic skills. We go into the prison. They witness and are part of a circle process with, four men who have killed other people, that's why they're in prison, and then also with four family members who have had their loved ones killed, not by the prisoners that are there, but, you know, they had their loved ones killed. And they mm. witnessed and experienced that whole process. And uh, I have been uh, extremely gratified to see the continuing and growing interest in that kind of work internationally where we're talking about restorative justice way beyond just juvenile and criminal justice particularly in peace-building areas like in Israel and Palestine, Northern Ireland, where I've done quite a bit of work. And you, you mentioned the term restorative justice dialogue, which I'm really intrigued by, and, and, I, and I, you just mentioned Israel and Palestine. You, I know you've done dialogue groups in Minneapolis or Minnesota. Do, ha, what, what's happened? Have you done anything like this in other parts of the world, and, and what have you done? What does that look like, and what impact does it have? Well, I have to make something clear. Like when I do work in other countries, you know, I go because I'm invited in. I don't go trying to sell myself or anything like that. And I go with very, um, what I hope are humble expectations. I don't go in trying to change the world. I go in to support local indigenous efforts in peace building, to offer them support, help if they want any kind of technical assistance or training. Uh, we've sent out packets, you know, like startup packets with video trainings, books, manuals, all kinds of materials. And 
I'll be very frank. You know, on the one and and by the way, the kind of work that I'm engaged in is what it's called track two or track three diplomacy. Like when I go in other countries, I'm not meeting with the high political muckety mucks, so to speak. Um, mm-hmm. I go in meeting with the community leaders that are very active and very respected in communities, and are working to humanize the conflict, to enter a dialogue with the people they've been grown up and trained to hate and wanting to kill. And it's a powerful thing to witness. And there's far more of that going on throughout the world than most citizens are aware of because the news media does not highlight that stuff. Occasionally, they'll, in the paper or the uh, television or radio, they'll highlight certain very moving uh, personal interest stories. But rarely do they put that in the context of how prevalent those are all over the place. I used to think, Matthew, in the, let's see, mid to late 80s, when I started to be asked to do this work with parents of murdered children and children of murdered parents, I used to think these were unique anecdotal cases involving people that were just incredibly forgiving and courageous, and that's why it works so good. And I've long since learned I was wrong. There are far more people, not the majority, I have to make that clear too, most victims of violence don't want to meet the person who killed their loved one or hurt them. That's got to be clear, and that should be respected. But Mm -hmm. there's far more people that have been hurt by violent crime, including in war zones, that as part of their own healing and the healing of the community, they want to meet the other person that caused the harm. When Texas, the the most retributive state in the free Western world, was the first state in America to, at a public policy level, allow victims of any kind of crime, no matter how heinous, to meet the prisoner as long as the prisoner was willing, and they're not forced into it, they had to voluntarily agree, and that's part of the restorative dialogue process, and as long as there were trained facilitators there. And, with, and that, they began that over around 1991. It, that program still exists today, and now there's 27 other states that have similar administrative procedures in their states. Mm. And when Texas opened, by the way, Matthew, they did not publicize it widely, but within, I think it was within the first year they had a waiting list of about four or 500 people who wanted to meet the offender. Wow. And wow. many of those I interviewed for some of my books or research, and you know, many of them would have literally shot and killed the person had they caught him at the time. And now, many years afterwards, part of their own healing, you know, hanging on that anger was like eating them out uh, and, and hurting themselves. And after meeting the person who killed their loved one, it shifted things in a big way. It didn't fix everything, but it shifted things in a way like took the power out of the thing, so they could move on with their lives. It must be so powerful to witness that. Un- unbelievable. Uh, I just want to quickly remind folks we're on the Restorative Justice on the Rise telecouncil for any new folks that are joining. And I want to open it up uh, for questions. So if anybody has a question that's on the phone line, you can push the one key on your keypad. And I'll, here in just a couple of minutes, we'll call on some folks and read some of the webcast questions. Um, Mark, the, you're talking about Texas, and, and we've been at the Peace Alliance working on this new bill in Colorado. That would, it's a pilot project to get it for juvenile issues. And have you noticed an 
and any kind of uptick or increase or, or give, what, are you, what are you aware of that you could share that's going on around the country in terms of actually in states integrating this work? Uh, has, it, has it been increasing? Is it already fairly prevalent? Well, it's, it's all very different throughout the United States. In Europe, they tend to have much more well-developed policies at the state level, the highest level, and then they bring it down to communities in a fairly common way. Here, there's, you know, there's so much independence between difference between states. It's done differently. For example, I recently was in North Dakota, and they have a very interesting model. It's kind of an interesting business model even, and it's through a nonprofit agency, Lutheran, Lutheran Social Services which is in most states, actually. And they have a, a small core staff in the state office, and they have contracted staff. I don't know, I think it's in about seven or eight regions that pretty much covers the whole state. And they do a combination of different types of restorative justice interventions, like working in schools with talking circles and peacemaking circles, working with the courts in terms of victim-offender conferencing, victim-offender mediation, uh, doing other kind of restorative justice interventions. It's a very nice model. Um, in Baltimore, Maryland, uh, the community conferencing program is a great model, and it also deals with uh, one of the major criticisms, legitimate criticisms of restorative justice over the years, that restorative justice seems to have the appearance of being primarily in white communities. And in Baltimore, uh, Maryland, where it's a primarily a com uh, made up of uh, people of color, they, have, they get over 1,000 referrals a year. They get them from all kinds of different uh, referral sources, from courts, schools, and the community. In a recent year, they actually had 1,185 referrals, and over 1,100 of those were minority youth referred. They held a variety of conferences. Actual conferences referred was uh, cases referred were 451, but they had you know many people involved in the case. And the point is, when they held the conferences, they had a successful rate of reaching an agreement at 98%, and the agreements were completed, not just agreed to, but completed in 97% of the time. And they also included mm -hmm. recidivism data, you know, criminal repeating. And mm -hmm. those young offenders who went through the Community Conferencing Center program, which is Restorative Justice in Baltimore, Maryland, were 60% less likely to reoffend. There are some states that have are trying to get statewide initiatives going, and you know there's as a movement, as a social movement, um, restorative justice is both developing in, in new and powerful ways, but also some of the programs are fading out in some areas because of lack of funding. Um, and it's you know it's hard for me to witness that, but I'm you know I've lived with that for quite a few decades. I'm amazed right. at how it is developing as much. And one of the ironies, it's an irony of ironies, um, where in communities involving um, in Native American communities, their communities have been so stripped of their culture through policies of ethnic cleansing. We wouldn't call it that, but that's what it was in terms of the state of Minnesota and, our, and many other states and the national government, they've been so stripped of their culture, uh, they have gone so far into the Western way of doing justice, the adversarial way, that they oftentimes have to bring people like me, who's non-native, in to work with them in bringing back the old ways. 
Uh, and elders will oftentimes kid with me, like, you got to bring this old white guy in to tell us to go back to the old ways. And when I'm <laughs> out in Indian country, I'm not pushing them to go the white way. <laughs> I'm trying right. to encourage them to reconnect with their values. And the good news is in many, many communities, Pine Ridge is an example, Fort Peck Reservation in western Montana where I've done a lot of work, where a lot of the old traditional ways and ceremonies are coming back. So there's, there's a lot of different indications of where restorative justice is developing. And by the way, in school system, in South St. Paul School District in Minneapolis, they revamped their entire school process for conflict, whether it was between teachers and students, teachers and teachers, students and janitors, whatever, and they introduced the peacemaking circle process. And there's a variety mm -hmm. of other schools doing that, not only here but in other states. But it's, it, there's many, and oh, by the way, there's many, many hybrids, too, that are being developed at this point. The one thing that does concern me with the movement, though, uh, as it's getting increasingly more popular, that I have seen more often than I'd want the absence of one of the most foundational pieces, and that is basically the question, where is the victim, the person who is victimized? Restorative justice is not an offender-based program alone. It is, begins with the reality that people and families have been hurt, communities have been hurt. Mm -hmm. You know, they've been victimized. That's a starting point. And it's not a zero-sum game, like you're just for the victim and not for the offender. Not at all. You're for both. You're for all. But it begins with the reality of victims. And victims have been largely ignored by our criminal and juvenile justice systems over the decades, years, many, many years. Mm -hmm. We do a better job in most states today than we used to. But still, the average treatment of victims is not too good. And I'm saying that as right. one who's been victimized several times. So bringing the victim into the process, not bringing them in, that sounds too aggressive, providing opportunities for those who have been victimized to be more actively involved in holding the offender accountable and promoting a sense of uh, healing among all, that's just the foundational piece of restorative justice. Thank you for that. It's very informative. Well, I'm going to open it up. Um, let's see, we have Jim. Jim, would you like to ask a question or share? Yeah, I'd love to. Um, it, it makes my heart sing to hear a colleague uh, in a kindred spirit. I'm about the same age. I was at Cal in the early 60s doing all the stuff that Cal students did. And I was a law student in the late 60s. And <clears throat> I was an angry and aggressive litigator. But I, my wife got cancer. And I ran across a guy named Jack Schwartz, who was a teacher and a healer and became my friend, who taught me about the lesson of forgiveness, forgiving. He was about he forgave, he was a Dutch Jew that got caught in the Nazi camps and he forgave the Nazis for himself. Mm -hmm. And he taught me the lesson of forgiveness. And I've since become a mediator and I'm a Rotarian and we're bringing restorative justice practices to the schools in a little northern town of California. And, but Rotary is spreading that same act, act, action all around the world, and it's getting, it's getting legs. And it's because of guys like you who are plowing that ground. So thank you so much. Well, I appreciate that. You know, the, thank you, Jim. In an area that, I, that you alluded to and I didn't mention before 
and that is, you know, restorative justice for years has also been applied in hate crimes, areas of hate crimes. I mean, within a few hours after the 9-11 terrorist attacks, a young man in Eugene, Oregon, in his rage and anger, called up the local Islamic Cultural Center and just spewed out all this hatred and anger and saying awful things and death to Muslims and all this. And he was eventually caught. And this is a beautiful case of the best of what restorative justice can be from my end in terms of system-wide and individual. The case was referred, you know, to the, the police got the guy. He was ashamed of what he did once he realized, you know, what he did. He had no criminal background whatsoever. Uh, when the prosecutors brought in the victims, the prosecutors listened to the victims quite a while and gave them two choices, which is amazing. They said, you know, we can do this the conventional way. And they essentially said, and this is from our perspective kind of like a slam dunk case, this guy's ashamed of what he did. He has admitted it. It's been all over the news media. Uh, we could pretty much assure you we could get the harshest punishment possible. And then he paused, and then the prosecutor said, but there's also another choice, and it's totally up to you. We refer a number of cases to this local neighborhood accountability board. It's part of this restorative justice movement. And if you want, we could refer your case. You would have an opportunity to meet with other people in the neighborhood who are concerned about crime and violence and safety in their communities. And a mediator, or sometimes they're called a facilitator, would talk with you and help prepare you for the whole process before you bring everyone together. And you would be able to meet with the young man who did this. And you'd be able to let them know how this affected you and your life and your community at the Islamic Cultural Center. And together you would be able to work out some way to repair the harm, some kind of penalty. And with rare exceptions, and it rarely happens that prosecutors rule it out, but uh, you know they, they honor what's proposed as a way of holding them accountable. So this, uh, the director of the Islamic Cultural Center and his wife chose that way. They had never heard of that. They talked with each other. And they said, no, we want to do that. That's more consistent with our values and what we, the Quran teaches us. And that went into an extended amount of preparation work by a friend and colleague of mine, and I kind of helped coach him uh, in the background. And he did a wonderful job of bringing the folks together in a community conference. It was kind of a hybrid of part of the victim-offender mediation process, part of the circle process. It was a beautiful job. And the first time they were brought together, it wasn't full dialogue. It was kind of breaking the ice. And direct eye contact could not even be made by the imam and the uh, young man, the offender. And they agreed to come together in a few weeks after some more preparation. And the second time they came together, um, it really was transformative. After a certain amount of time, it moved from uncomfortableness and awkwardness to the imam being able to look the young man directly in his eyes, to listen to his story, to tell more of the impact on the Muslim community. And they worked out a plan and presented it to the court as a way of holding them accountable, writing a letter of apology to the Muslim community, printed on the front page of the local paper. Uh, lots of community service hours, speaking in schools and civic organizations and churches and wherever. And uh, probably most importantly, uh, the young man agreed to go to, th I believe it was three lectures on Islam at the cultural center, because uh, he, this guy was Christian, and this, most Christians, frankly, they don't have a clue that you know Muslims, Christians, and Jews are 
we're all children of Abraham. We're cousins. <laughs> the theology is very, very different because they come out of different cultural settings. But the core values, the deeper spiritual values, are remarkably similar. Mm. We don't have time for me to go into other cases, but these are the kind of cases that are highlighted in my book, Dancing with the Energy of Conflict and Trauma. There's a case in there about a hate crime against a Jewish synagogue by neo-Nazis. And um, it's, it's, wow. these are not overhyped stories, by the way, that I'm sharing with you now or in the book. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I literally mean it. These are like, this is real stuff. Um, I don't have the time to even go into more. And it's certainly not just me. I mean, I'm just one little drop in the ocean of this movement at this point. I mean, uh, people have been doing this over the years. Uh, it's hard not to bear witness to incredible things. And that's the term we increasingly use. We're not fixing. We're not analyzing. We're not therapizing or anything like that. It's like we do the preparation and then energetically we try to respect the space that they have and to bear witness to their strength, their resilience. And frankly, oftentimes, if we can calm our own egos, which takes practice, the people we're helping become our teachers of deep, mm. powerful life lessons. Sure, been my Thank you, Jim. And um, let me call in another uh, person on the phone, Nancy. Yes, hi. Um, this is a question that, or, yeah, I guess it's a question that may have already been answered or suggested. Uh, you had mentioned a, a while back, um, Mark, that restorative justice, that the... Um, the exercise the, the the doesn't fix everything, and so um, I hope you remember having said that. Oh yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And what what I my question is, what can you say it doesn't fix? Well, for example, if um, in working with parents of murdered children, um, they have the enormous trauma of you know the death of their child in such a horrific way. And they, but they might have had other traumatic experiences in their lives prior to that, and they had never dealt with them. And now they've got this trauma. And the restorative justice dialogue, like coming face-to-face -face together with a person that's been the terror in your life, essentially, and after a lot of preparation, it depowers it. It humanizes the process in a way that helps you move on. But it isn't necessarily going to fix other emotional issues or problems that you had even before the immediate trauma that brought you here, you know, the crime that occurred. I, you know, this is, I'm really glad you raised that because it does concern me about, and I was probably guilty of the same thing, you know, back in my 20s a long time ago, of overhyping it and just thinking that this is going to fix everything. Uh, I don't view it that way. I mean, I view restorative dialogue and restorative processes in general as some of the most realistic and when done the right way, some of the deepest transformative interventions imaginable. They're one of the most therapeutic interventions, but they're not psychotherapy. They're done in a very natural, respectful way that taps into the strength and resiliency and wisdom that every one of us has, every one of us. But that does not mean that you go through this and zip, bam, boom, everything's done. 
Uh, it's like that's my view of forgiveness, and this is what the film gets into too. Forgiveness is um, it's more of a journey than a destination. It's a way of life grounded in the spirit of humility and compassion. You, you know, the path of forgiveness is not like you forgive and boom, it's gone. And some people believe this. And, you know, I, that's just not been my own experience. I don't want to speak harshly against other people if they've experienced it. But my own experience over the years within my own family and the many people I've worked with in different countries, forgiveness is a precious jewel. It's a gift of freedom to yourself, and it frequently helps the other person as well. Uh, but it doesn't mean that levels of anger might not get triggered again at some point but they're just real depowered. Uh, one of the best examples I can give, and this is an example of how people I'm asked to help end up helping me through incredible spiritual gifts. Um, a young woman who came to me, oh, about 21 years after her father was murdered, she went through lengthy preparation, met the guy in prison who killed her dad when she was 14. Never in the 18 months of preparation had we ever talked about forgiveness. I teach courses on forgiveness and healing. They're more like learning retreats. They're not like lectures. And I never said, um, Steph, did you ever think of forgiveness? You know, there's so much evidence that forgiveness is good physiologically for you as well as emotionally. I never said that. If she had brought up the term forgiveness and wanted to talk about it, I would have gladly done that. But again, I've learned by bringing up forgiveness subtly, even pushing it, it, it doesn't create a safe place for most people. It sounds very judgmental. But in the process of the dialogue, she, after, gosh, it was after three hours, and there was a silence, and I could tell something was going on in her head, and she turned toward the man who killed her dad and said, I want you to know that I forgive you. I'm doing this for my husband sitting next to me, for my kids. I refuse to carry this on for the rest of my life. And... It was, it was incredible to bear witness to that. And, and in an interview with her a couple of years after that, and I have this on videotape, um, she uses the metaphor of how before meeting the man who killed her dad, it was like carrying a big backpack loaded with rocks always on her back. It was always there. It was always a burden. She always felt it in her life. After meeting the man who killed her dad, going through all the preparation work, now it's a fanny pack. I love this analogy. Fits. <laughs> It's a fanny pack. It's still part of the weave of my life. You never get total closure. It's part of the weave of my life. But it, it just doesn't have the power. My wife and I are, have been dancing with the energy of cancer and severe illness for nearly two decades. And uh, at this moment, my wife's cancer has come back in a big way. And we, that's been a gift to us, that metaphor. You know, cancer 18 years ago when it first came was terrifying. And over the years, we've learned to move it from that, those rocks in the backpack to the fanny pack. We've learned to befriend it. We've learned to accept it as part of who we are at this point in life and not to give it more power and load it with fear or anger. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you, Nancy. Um, and thanks for sharing about your family issues, too. I'm sure everyone joins me in wishing you and your wife the best as you continue through that journey. Thank you. Uh, I'm going to ask a question from the webcast. This is from, from Dove. I think that's how you pronounce it. Uh, it's a practical question. It says, for a recent graduate intrigued by restorative justice, 
what field should I be looking at for my next step? Law, public administration, something else? Well, yeah, that is a really nice question. The, um, unfortunately, there aren't a lot of jobs that will be posted restorative justice administrator or restorative justice uh, director or whatever. There are jobs like that that come up in different communities and agencies, but restorative justice is being inloaded into other jobs that are very common. For example, going into probate, like if you have an interest in criminal or juvenile justice, looking into working as a probation officer. Lots of folks out of um, undergraduate or graduate degrees go into probation fields, court services fields, and many court services embrace restorative justice. And frankly, even if there's not a formal policy that says this is the restorative justice policy of our county court system, there's ways of weaving it in just to the way you work with victims and offenders just the way you treat them, the respect you show them. I hope you understand what I mean by that. I'm not trying to have you be devious or anything like that, but it's it just you can, you can use restorative justice as simply a way of how you respect and work with other people. It's much more helpful when there's actual policies because then you can get into more specific, more well-developed programs. But ultimately, restorative justice is a way of life. It is not just a intervention or a program or a three-year plan. Um, and that's something that you'll hear, I'm sure you've heard from Howard and Lorraine and other Dan Van Ness, others you've had on the show here. Uh, it's just, it's, it's, a, it's a way of life. Yeah. And, it, and a very, to me, a very practical way of life. I hope that's helpful. Although let me, was. let me expand okay. just one, uh, the fact is you could go into public, if you went into public administration and certain other fields, you'd have to play a more of an advocacy role to try to introduce restorative justice more, unless that happened to be the policy of the place. Um, here's another area, too, like in schools, um, you know, depending on what your degree is, if you had a degree in social work, for example, I teach in a graduate school of social work at the University of Minnesota, if you uh, were a school social worker, that's a very good path to bring restorative justice in. Many schools already use it. Many others would love to use it. Well, that's a that's a that's a great um, that's a great offering to the advocacy element. I'm I'm curious, um, Mark, what what advice you might offer for those of us like at the Peace Alliance, where we're really focused on advocacy for for things like this at the political level um, to help bring things like restorative justice forward and, and really to shift away from our more punitive and as, as you said the more adversarial approaches uh, towards these more restorative approaches do you have any advice or lessons learned that might inform our advocacy and help us well uh, yeah as I we do. take and this on there are lessons learned from what at this point in my life I look back and view as very well-intentioned ma major advocacy that had the opposite effect. Um, mm. When we simply push our values on other people, no matter how passionate we are about them, no matter how much research we think is behind them, if we're unable to allow space to really listen, not only to listen to our adversaries, to, but to invite their 
spewing out their concerns or even their anger. If we don't allow that space, it's hard to have a transformative process. I learned this long before I could articulate it the way I do now um, and using terms like the energy of conflict and trauma. But one of the biggest shifts occurred back in the oh boy late 70s with this organization, these ex-cons and I set up, where the local prosecutor uh, vehemently disliked us. You know, the group was called and still is Prisoner and Community Together. We set up a halfway house. He viewed us as a bunch of, you know, liberal folks helping all these criminals and all. And, um, and I knew he was really basically pissed off at us and was blocking us politically. And somehow I had the courage in those young years, I don't know where it came from, I just called him up and I said, um, I happen to still remember his first name even, I said, Skip, you know, I know you have some real concerns and criticisms of PACT, our organization, and I know that we don't agree on much, but I really want to hear from you what you're saying so I can get a better understanding of it and so we can see if there's some way of maybe finding a few steps toward a common path of doing some things together. But mostly I want to hear and learn from your criticism. That takes like a major humbling of the ego. And again, I don't know where I found the strength to do that, but that was one of the most transformative things. Uh, we went out for lunch. He let it out. Every 30 seconds, my ego wanted to say, oh, but you don't, don't you understand? We're not about, you didn't hear me. That's, you know, I, I would want to respond <laughs> defensively. We all do that, you know. <laughs> and somehow I was able to keep my mouth shut. And it just spewed out. And I just listened. And I did not defend. And I just said, uh, at the end I said, Skip, this has been hard for me to hear. You know, I didn't realize you had this strong uh, dislike for what's going on and disrespect but I appreciate you being honest. And would you believe uh, a couple weeks after that, he called me up and said, uh, Mark, would you want to come and speak uh, to our prosecutor's meeting? And I said, yeah, my jaw dropped. He invites me <laughs> over there, and he introduces me and says, uh, you know, this is uh, Umbright, this guy that I uh, have been so critical of all these years. And I want to tell you, he's not, tell you, he's not as bad as I thought. I don't agree with him most of the time. But I wanted you guys to hear, you know, what he's got to say about his organization and the halfway house. Well, that's just one example of many, many others. Mm -hmm. For example, if you want to uh, find an area where uh, restorative justice is totally underutilized and could have major transformative macro-level policy, it's like in Congress, in the Senate, in most of our – and I'm not kidding. Mm -hmm. And there have been mm -hmm. little efforts on the edges to do this, I know, with some colleagues – Learning to sit in the space, in the energetic space of our adversaries, those who push our buttons, who we totally disagree with, learning to calm our ego is huge. Is it going to fix everything and solve every, all policy issues? No. Is it going to shift the energy so we can humanize each other a bit and begin working in constructing some kind of new story, new policy, finding some common ground? probably one of the only things that will. Mm. And it's Powerful. hard to do. As a I was a radical activist in the late 60s and early 70s. I couldn't have done it then. It's <laughs> <laughs> powerful, powerful testament, definitely. Powerful examples. Well, Mark, I, I have a million other questions, and I know some on the call do, but we are at the end of the hour. Before we leave, I was hoping you'd share a little bit about this conference in Ohio. 
That's uh, coming yes. up in June? Uh, on June 19th to the 21st in Toledo, Ohio, uh, the National Restorative Justice Conference is going to be held. And this is held every two years. It's a great conference, and the topic of this conference is particularly appropriate. It's on race and restorative justice, an issue that has not been dealt sufficiently during the whole 30-year-plus history of the movement. And the um, uh, keynote speaker is Angela Davis. And there's mm. people from many different other cultures that will be presenting, and I would encourage folks to consider going to that. Again, it's in Toledo, Ohio. If you Google National Restorative Justice Conference, Toledo, Ohio, you'll get the information. Great. Matthew, I want to thank you for inviting me to be on the show. I apologize for my probably too lengthy answers to some of the questions, but I sure appreciate the opportunity to interact with all of you. Mm -hmm. it, was, it was an honor, a real honor to hear you know, more of your story and your, your wisdom, and I appreciate your humbleness, but was also really touched by what you shared and, and the depth of that, and I think, I think for all of us it will deepen whatever we're doing and however we're holding this work. So, so grateful and appreciative. And just to remind people, the, the film that's coming up soon is called Being with the Energy of Forgiveness. And the book is uh, Dancing with the Energy of Conflict and Trauma. And you can find both of those, information on both of those and other things on the website, which is rjp.umn.edu. So that's rjp.umn.edu. And, and again, thank you so much, Mark. And the book will be so available through Amazon.com as well. That will be the easiest way to get it. Great, and we'll share for those of you who aren't on our Peace Alliance Facebook or Twitter, join in when it comes out. We'll be sure and share it out there so folks can learn about it and, and see it. So thank you, thank you, Mark. So appreciate it. Okay, uh, thank many you. blessings for your work, and uh, we'll continue to learn more and tap in and be inspired. Okay, thank you. Bye-bye. Take care, everybody.